Hello, and welcome to podcast number 19 from Called to Communion. Our guest today is Dr. Thomas F. Madden, professor of history and director of the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at St. Louis University. Dr. Madden has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and the History Channel as an author and historical consultant. Dr. Madden's recent books include Venice, A New History, The Concise History of the Crusades, and Empires of Trust. He has also written and lectured extensively on the ancient and medieval Mediterranean, as well as the history of Christianity and Islam. Today, Dr. Madden will be speaking with us on some of the most common Protestant criticisms of the medieval Catholic Church, covering such topics as the Crusades, the Inquisition, and the Avignon Papacy and subsequent period of three popes. Interviewing Dr. Madden today is a friend to call to communion, Nick Lee, a former missionary of Focus, a Catholic college campus ministry, and a current student at Kendrick Glennon Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Let's join the discussion. Dr. Madden, let's talk first about one of your most noted specialties, the Crusades. You've invested quite a bit of energy in debunking some of the common misconceptions of the Crusades, such as their portrayal in the Hollywood movie Kingdom of Heaven. It seems like many people have a perception of the Crusades as a power play by the Catholic Church to extend its control into the Middle East, resulting in tremendous chaos and violence at the expense of Muslims. Could you speak to that perception? Yes, it's a, it, it's a faulty perception. It, it's one that's based more on modern wars than it is on medieval wars. The, the, the impetus for the Crusades was an attack by uh, Muslim forces, primarily the Seljuk Turks, in the, uh, the Christian Empire of Byzantium. Uh, this was the, uh, the territory of Asia Minor, what's today Turkey. Um, we call it Turkey because the, the Turks conquered it. The, the, that land uh, had been Christian for many, many centuries, and it was essentially half of the Christian Byzantine Empire. The, uh, the emperor in Constantinople uh, faced with this uh, devastating defeat by these Muslim forces, asked the Pope, Urban II, in uh, Europe, to, to ask the, the knights of uh, Western Christendom to come to their aid and to, to free the people who had been enslaved and to restore the lands that had been violently taken from them. Um, that's essentially the, the reason that the Crusades uh, were called in the first place. And the uh, desire of those uh, knights, who were keenly aware of their own sinfulness, uh, was to uh, use something that they were actually good at which was fighting, uh, to the benefit of their souls by doing an act of charity. And that's the way it was understood. It was understood as an act of charity and an act of love, love of neighbor. Um, They were going at their own expense and at great personal peril to restore these lands back to the original owners. Now, uh, as the crusade went on, of course, there were all sorts of uh, various twists and turns to it. And so by the end of the crusade, uh, they had given back uh, quite a a bit of territory. They recaptured Nicaea, uh, but uh, because they then later had fallings out with uh, the Byzantine emperors, they uh, ended up keeping the city of Antioch, which they uh, took back from the Muslims, and then ultimately uh, they were successful in conquering Jerusalem 
and then in the years and the decades uh, after that in conquering uh, really the entire uh, near eastern areas, the areas that are today Lebanon, Syria, uh, Israel, and uh, and they ruled those as uh, as feudal lords in much the same way they would have in Europe. The purpose of the Crusader states, though, was always to protect the holy sites. They were not an end in themselves. They were not a colonial system. They had no mother country. Um, the purpose of them was to defend the holy sites so that pilgrims could uh, could be there, could could travel to those those places um, so uh, it was not a colonial enterprise it was in fact uh, it was not something that made money for anyone in fact it, made, it lost enormous amounts of money but it was something that Europeans Europeans not the church but Europeans felt strongly about the churches uh, stand in this was simply to declare these acts of charity um, and as penitential acts um, that was essentially the role of the church, to, to identify those as acts that were penitential, in the same way that a, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land would have been penitential. Thank you. A more reformed Protestant objection to the Crusades would be that this period in Christian history reflects a great overreach on the part of the church by involving itself in politics and encouraging warfare, rather than focusing on preaching the gospel and administering the sacraments. Do you think the Crusades were an extension of the church's mission or an embarrassing aberration? Is it possible to reconcile Jesus' otherworldly emphasis on the kingdom of God with the medieval church's promotion of the Crusades and Crusader states? Yes, I think absolutely. The, uh, the purpose of, of the church is not only to, um, to preach the gospel, but also to, to preach to Christians how they are to live out the gospel. And uh, Jesus was very clear that, that this was not to be a religion that was simply one of the mind um, in which we simply uh, prayed and, and thought, but it was to be a religion of action, one in which you did God's work in the world. Um, if you look at, for example, the, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan, the priests who walked by uh, the, uh, the man who had been uh, set upon by robbers, um, they're not the heroes of this story because they high-mindedly walk along and, and, and go to the other side and, and read their prayers. Uh, the one that, that Christ wants us to look at is, is the, the man who, who stops and, and binds the wounds of this person and takes care of them um, and brings them to the inn. And that's precisely the way that the uh, crusaders saw themselves. They were going to the east uh, to defend people who were defenseless against the Muslims that had attacked them. For no other reason that they were, than that they were Christians, and their mission was to restore these lands, um, and that usually meant fighting wars to push the Muslim um, conquerors out. And in that respect, then they were acting. Uh, they saw in a very Christ-like manner. In fact, one of the reasons why they donned crosses, the reasons why they placed cr crosses on their their uh, their tunics. Uh, or on their shields was because they saw themselves as uh, taking up the cross of Christ, that if you would be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. And therefore, they were literally taking up that cross, a very, very heavy burden, a very difficult journey, uh, an extremely expensive one. And they were marching off to do this uh, action, uh, not because they were 
um, wonderful saints, but quite the opposite, because they were pitiful sinners, and they knew full well the extent of their sins. These were men who, who made their living by the sword, and they knew what peril their, their souls were in. And so by coming to the rescue of these people in the East, these Christians in the East, um, they saw themselves as, as doing precisely what Christ uh, had told them to do. And the church understood this as well. And therefore, um, the church never, the church is not organizing crusades. It's a misnomer to believe that the church is, is um, organizing them and then launching them. Rather, the church simply makes the indulgence available. They simply point out the problems in the East, and then they say those who are willing to take the cross uh, and to go and to fight on the crusade, therefore enjoy the indulgence that the, the, that the church makes possible. Uh, but the, it's the crusaders themselves who do it. Crusade, unlike Islamic Jihad, is not a requirement of the faith. It's simply one path towards doing uh, the work of Christ. Um, it's a path for the warriors to, to, do, um, to do Christ's work on earth. That's the way they saw it. Thank you. Moving on to the Inquisition, another common area of criticism by Protestants. Could you provide a little background on the origin and nature of the Inquisition? Yes, the, the Inquisition uh, began in the 12th century. The reason for the Inquisition uh, was the fact that secular governments in Western Europe uh, during the Middle Ages considered heresy, uh, in other words, any belief that is not the Catholic faith, to be a capital offense. Now, the reason that the state, in other words, we're talking about royal governments here, or local secular governments, uh, the reason that they believed that this was heresy was that in the Middle Ages, the authority of a king comes from God. And it is, because it comes from God, it is recognized by the church. If you are someone who calls into question the Catholic faith, and therefore the authority of the church, that means you have inherently called into question the authority of the king. And in fact, uh, heretics generally tended to be, uh, the few that, were exi that existed in the Middle Ages, tended to be uh, also uh, uh, rebels against uh, what, whatever the royal authority was in that area, because it was in intrinsically the same thing. And so for that reason, throughout the medieval centuries, royal governments uh, and all secular governments considered heresy to be treason. And the, the uh, penalty for treason in the Middle Ages was the same as it is today, um, death. Now, the church was not involved in uh, this at all because the church does not have a law that says that you die if you are no, not a Catholic. There's nothing like that in canon law, nor has there ever been. The reason the church became involved in this is because in these secular courts, the judges in them were illiterate nobles who had no religious training whatsoever. And therefore, when someone was accused of heresy, there was no basis on which to make these judgments. And therefore, they made judgments simply uh, based on a whim. And in most cases, or a great many cases, they would simply burn the heretic or the accused heretic uh, just to be on the safe side. The church, therefore, insisted in the 1180s uh, that 
that from now on, church officials had to be involved in this first. That if someone was accused of heresy, that person needed to be uh, investigated by the local church officials prior to the time it went before the secular courts. And that's what the Inquisition was. It was an opportunity for, at first, the local bishops, and then later, uh, mostly Dominicans, to take the accused, ask them questions to find out whether what they believed was actually a heresy or not. And then most importantly, um, and this is why the church was particularly interested in getting involved in this, they could then uh, have the opportunity to uh, convince the person of the error. In the vast majority of cases of accused heresy in the Middle Ages, the person was not uh, a heretic because they had chosen that. They were just simply people who had not understood the, the faith. And they wanted to understand it, but they had never really been taught it. And so the Inquisition gave an opportunity for someone to say, what you are saying is not right, here is, here is the Catholic faith. And then the person would, in the vast majority of cases, accept that. And they would um, then do penance for um, having thought something different. In other words, the reason that the Inquisition was set up was to a, save souls, um, to, to help those who had gone astray, and B, to save lives, because a great number of people were being executed uh, without, any, without any recourse and without any real evidence either. The Inquisition used Roman law methods of evidence, um, and they kept very meticulous records, unlike the civil courts. And therefore, in those cases, what would happen is the Inquisition would get the jurisdiction over these uh, cases. The Inquisitors then would ask questions, which is what Inquisitor means, and then they would make a judgment at the end of that as to whether the person was a heretic or not a heretic. In the vast majority of cases, they were acquitted, and so the secular courts were simply told, this person is not a heretic, and it would go no further. Um, in a very small minority of cases where you had someone who was really a determined heretic, then the church would simply make the judgment that yes, you are in fact a heretic, and they would inform the secular government, and then the secular government would execute them. Interestingly, uh, the Inquisition never actually burned anyone. It was not a church crime, it was a secular crime. And the reason the Inquisition eventually went away is because states stopped executing people uh, for heresy. Thank you. Finally, let's talk about the Western Schism, or the Papal Schism of late 14th and early 15th centuries, when men in Avignon and Rome both claimed to be the rightful successor to Peter, and thus the true Bishop of Rome. At one point, there were even three men all simultaneously claiming to be the Pope. Could you provide an explanation to our listeners as to how this controversy developed? Yes, it was, it was a very uh, complicated time uh, for uh, medieval Europe, the 14th uh, and the 15th centuries were, were very difficult for Europe. Uh, during most of the 14th century, the popes were reigning not in Rome, but in Avignon, which is today in southern France, uh, then it was in part of the, uh, the Holy Roman Empire. Um, the reason why uh, they were in Avignon is, again, very complex, but it largely had to do with the extremely unsettled political situation in Rome. Rome had become an extremely dangerous place to be, and therefore uh, the bishops of Rome uh, began uh, reigning in Avignon as a temporary measure. No one expected it to be permanent, 
But as these things happen, as year after year went by, the momentum of just the of being in Avignon and the entire apparatus of the bureaucracy of the papacy was so well established in Avignon that uh, it became very difficult to leave. Nonetheless, it was well known uh, throughout Europe and by the popes and the cardinals themselves that this was not right, that the Bishop of Rome should be in Rome. Um, he should not be reigning outside of Rome. And therefore, uh, Gregory XI, Pope Gregory XI, uh, in uh, 1378 came back to Rome and uh, moved everything there, the college cardinals and everything else. It was very difficult, it was very dangerous, and as it happened, uh, Gregory died shortly after arriving, which meant that the Car College of Cardinals needed to convene to elect a new pope, which they did. But, as I just said, Rome was an extremely dangerous place, and the Roman mobs uh, rose up and surrounded the building and demanded that the cardinals elect a Roman. And uh, they stayed there for some time. Eventually, they didn't end up electing a Roman, but they did end up in a, electing an Italian. Um, this was the Archbishop of Bari, um, who was known to be a fairly quiet man. Um, he was well known uh, to the cardinals. And that was good enough for the Romans. And so, and everyone was quite pleased by this. A number of the cardinals wrote back home that they thought this was the best of all uh, possible situations, that they really felt like the Holy Spirit was, was clearly at work here in this choice uh, because it had both satisfied the cardinals and it had satisfied uh, the angry Romans. And the Romans' position was they didn't want another pope who was just going to go back to Avignon. As it turned out, however, uh, the Archbishop of Bari, who took the name Urban, this was Urban VI, uh, he uh, was an extremely zealous reformer, and many of the cardinals uh, were themselves guilty of various uh, clerical abuses. Many of them were bishops of more than one area, because they, they collected the money, the tithes from those areas, but didn't really do anything. Uh, and a number of them also uh, uh, had other, they, they, they had a lot of money. These were truly the princes of the, the church. And there was a great deal of criticism uh, of the church during this time. This new pope was a major reformer, and he very strongly pushed that reform agenda against these cardinals, um, insisting that they divest themselves of extra sees uh, and other privileges uh, that they had. And this was not popular, as you might imagine. And so because of that, a number of the cardinals then, primarily French cardinals, uh, left Rome and they issued a declaration in which they stated that the previous election was not valid because they had elected someone under duress and therefore it was not a, a valid election. And they then proceeded to elect uh, one of their own, um, a French Frenchman, uh, to be the new pope. Their original plan was to get some military and, and march on Rome uh, to, uh, to put their new pope in, but as it happens, um, they weren't able to do that, and so they simply went back to Avignon. And so that's the situation that we have um, in uh, 1378 when we begin what's called the Papal Schism or the Western Schism or the Great Schism. Uh, you have a pope in Avignon and a pope in Rome then after 1378. Now, the election uh, in Rome, um, on the face of it, appears to have been completely canonical, uh, but 
uh, when this was when this question this question became very much bound up in politics, and so different uh, people at uh, different theologians at different universities disagreed. For example, University of Paris, uh, they sided with the Avignon Pope, and so as a result, Europe uh, became divided. Um, it is true that at one point they even ended up with three. This was because um, there was a movement at this time called conciliarism, and a number of the conciliarists had argued that it was only a church council that could, that could end the schism. And so a number of the cardinals from both Avignon and Rome uh, got together at Pisa, the Council of Pisa, and they called themselves into being, and since neither of the popes would call them into being, and there at the Council of Pisa, they declared both popes deposed and they elected a new pope. Um, and uh, ultimately, uh, that pope ended up uh, heading towards Rome. The problem with that, of course, was that neither of the other two popes recognized the authority of the council. And so what you ended up with was simply the creation of a third pope. Um, and it simply made a bad situation uh, even worse. Obviously, this was a very confusing and difficult time for anyone living in Western Christendom who earnestly sought to discern who was the real pope. Was there any way to determine the legitimate pope? Can we say with any level of confidence that the actual, canonically legal successor to Peter was maintained through that crisis? Or is this simply another power play where the most powerful people ultimately won? I think uh, this question um, actually assumes from the beginning, of course, that the, the legitimate successor of St. Peter has papal authority, has the, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And um, if that is the case, if we accept that as the premise, then we also have to accept that that authority given to him by Christ uh, is also safeguarded by Christ's other words in which he said, I will not leave you orphan, uh, but will send to you the Holy Spirit. And Catholics believe, and have believed for 2,000 years, that when a new pope is chosen, that those words, that promise that Christ made is fulfilled, and that therefore the pope who is chosen um, is in fact the pope that the Holy Spirit um, wants, and that the Holy Spirit protects those popes uh, from error. And in fact, in the entire 2,000-year history of the Catholic Church, no pope has ever taught error in faith or morals. There has never been a pope who has had to go back and say, well, my predecessor was wrong about, about that. And so that seems to me to be fairly good evidence that that, that is the case. In this case, um, therefore, um, if we assume that the Holy Spirit uh, is at work uh, in this process, then we can rest assured that the real pope uh, eventually emerged. But there's other reasons to think so as well, um, if you just want to look at the actual history of it. the uh, the Roman popes were the successors of uh, Urban VI, who was elected canonically uh, and was the sole pope uh, in Rome in 1378. And the Avignon popes were not. They were elected afterwards by a rump group of cardinals that were upset because their, their uh, um, various privileges and, um, and other revenue streams were being cut off by a reforming pope. And so um, that in itself seems uh, to make very clear that the Roman popes were, in fact, uh, the legitimate popes. I mean, anyone, any group of, of people can go off and elect somebody and call them pope. 
But that doesn't make them the Pope. It, it has to be a canonical election, and that's what the original 1378 election was. By the same token, the Council of Pisa uh, called itself into being uh, when councils in, in uh, Western Europe do not have the authority to call themselves into being. They must be called into being by, by the Pope. And therefore, it was uh, illegitimate, um, really, from the beginning. And its deposition, therefore, of popes, which is not possible uh, because over long-standing tradition in the Catholic Church, popes cannot be judged. They are appointed by God, and therefore they cannot be judged. Uh, and that's precisely what the Council of Pisa did, uh, was to judge the pope and then to appoint another pope. Therefore, uh, when, the count, when the schism ended, we see that it was in fact the Roman pope who contacted the Council of Constance and offered to call that council into being. And it was that council that, after it was duly uh, constituted uh, in the way that a council was supposed to be, um, it then uh, decreed that Gregory uh, XII was the legitimate pope and that his successors um, had been the legitimate pope as well. So, uh, again, unless you believe that Christ gave authority to the pope, this is a question without meaning. Uh, and if you believe, then you also have to believe that the Holy Spirit guided this process from beginning to end. However, if you do not believe, and you're just simply interested in marking this up as a list of popes, well, I think even there, um, just from a purely legalistic standpoint, it's, it's very clear that the Roman popes were the legitimate popes, uh, and they continued to be uh, after the schism uh, finished in 1417. Great, thank you. Dr. Madden, thank you for taking the time to discuss these common Protestant objections to the Catholic faith and sharing from your wealth of knowledge. Has your own study of the medieval Catholic Church in any respect bolstered your own Catholic faith or devotion? Yes, uh, immensely, I would say. Um, the, uh, I found uh, throughout my life that the study of church history is enormously faith-building. I think uh, we Catholics often tend to be afraid of our own history. I think most Catholics think of the history of the church as um, the time of Jesus and the apostles, and then they fast forward very quickly to the Second Vatican Council uh, and anything that happened after that. And they cut out the 19 centuries of history in between. And I think the reason that they do is they're a little bit afraid of what they're going to find in there, of um, mad inquisitors and, and crazed popes and and torture chambers and, and, uh, and all the rest. Um, but much of what, much of those images are completely false. Many of the images that we have, the negative images that we have of the, the history of the medieval church, were images that were conjured up in the 18th and 19th centuries. They have nothing to do really with the, with the real history of the church. And I've always found that as I looked and watched through the centuries, um, the history of the church, you can really see the, the hand of the Holy Spirit in action as time goes on. Um, you can see how the Holy Spirit is not only protecting the church, um, but is uh, helping it to grow. If you think about it, um, the church begins in this very small way, just the followers of, of Jesus uh, in the backwater area of the Roman Empire. And it grows rapidly to become uh, the, the religion of the Roman Empire. And then 
um, ultimately to expand all over the world. The, that occurs despite the fact that during the last 2,000 years, the most powerful men and the most powerful empires uh, that have existed have done everything they could to destroy the church. And they're all gone. Uh, it's the church that's, that's still left. And so I think by, by looking at how that uh, came about, not through armies, uh, not through uh, w waging war or assassinations or any of the sort, and by no means do I want to give the impression that everyone in the church is saints. In fact, it's the opposite. They're all sinners. Um, but the church itself, to watch it across the centuries, you really can see um, the, the hand of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I find that to be uh, very comforting and very faith-building. Thank you so much. For those listeners eager to learn more about these subjects, or the medieval Catholic Church more generally, maybe from a perspective that might deal with further religious objections to this era of the Church, do you have any reading recommendations? Um, yes, there are um, a number of good uh, histories of, uh, of the Church, uh, general histories. Uh, I recommend uh, James Hitchcock's uh, History of the Catholic Church. Um, there's another one by uh, John Vidmar, uh, which I think is a, it's much smaller. These are introductory uh, books uh, that anyone could approach. Uh, with regards to the various things that we've talked about here, um, on the Crusades, I would recommend my own book, which is called uh, The Concise History of the Crusades. Um, but um, there's also an excellent book by uh, Jonathan Riley Smith, who's a historian at uh, Cambridge University, which is simply called What Were the Crusades? And uh, it's a very easy to, to get into. Um, regarding the Inquisition, I think the best book uh, on the Inquisition or introductory text is uh, by Edward Peters, uh, a very distinguished historian at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and the title is just simply uh, Inquisition. Uh, unfortunately, there are no entry-level books on the, uh, the schism uh, during the 14th or 15th century. It's just... It's just too complex uh, for that, but you can you can learn more about it uh, by by reading some of those introductory books that I mentioned at the beginning. Thanks again, Dr. Madden. This has been very enlightening and helpful. For more information on Dr. Madden's own work on the Middle Ages, check out www.thomasmadden.org. Thank you again. Thank you. You've been listening to Called to Communion. Visit us on the web at calledtocommunion.com. Thank you for listening, and please remember to pray for the full visible unity of all those who endeavor to follow Christ.